Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Awesome. Well, for those of you just joining us online at Crosspoint, welcome. Uh, and we're so glad you could be with us. We are actually in the final week today of a series that we've been doing through the prophet Amos. And if you're going to really understand today, I really encourage you to go back and listen to or watch the previous parts of the series because they really do build on top of each other. Uh, but uh, if you have a Bible accessible, I'm going to get you to turn to the book of Amos chapter 9. So that is the final chapter in the book of Amos. And for those of us just joining us, and uh, maybe for even for the rest of us, I just want to give you a bit more of the backstory on the book of Amos to make sure that we're all on the same page as we talk about this together. So who was Amos? Amos was a prophet. He lived during a time in Israel's history that was known as the divided kingdom. Uh, so you, you might remember that at this time, uh, the nation of Israel was divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Amos was a shepherd who lived in the south. So, uh, but God had called Amos to go and to prophesy to the nation in the north, which was Israel. So Amos did what only Amos should do. He listened to the Lord. He followed the Lord in glad obedience, and he made a beeline to Bethel in the northern uh, nation of Israel. Now, Bethel was kind of like the religious capital. It's where the major temple was. And so Amos went straight to Bethel, the religious center of Israel, and he went there to warn them of the coming judgment of the Lord on the nation of Israel. And he called them. He says, you need to repent. You need to turn back to the Lord. And so the book of Amos, really, it's a collection. It's a collection of the poems and the sayings and the sermons of Amos in final form that's kind of been put together in these nine chapters. So today, we come to the last chapter of the book, and this is the last week of the series. And if you have a Bible handy, let's, uh, let's look at Amos chapter 9 together in just a second. But uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this term. The term is plot twist. So in a story, a plot is basically a series of interconnected events that make up the story. Every good story needs a plot, but a plot twist is something that happens uh, in the story that is completely unexpected. So, in many times in the story, the plot twist usually happens near the end of the story. So, there's just like this surprise ending the, known as the plot twist. So, so, let me give you some examples of plot twists from uh, maybe movies that you're familiar with. How about The Empire Strikes Back? Luke. <sighs> I am your father. Yeah! Okay, plot twist, right? Um, here's another one. Avengers Infinity War, right? Marvel movie, right? The Avengers going toe-to-toe with Thanos. He wants to collect the little jewelry so that he can destroy the entire universe. And of course, this is a Marvel movie. So in a Marvel movie, you know how it always ends, right? The good guys win. They destroy the bad guy in the end. And in the end of the movie, uh, Thanos, of course, almost dies, almost gets destroyed, but suddenly there's just, whoa, this plot twist, and Thanos goes like this, and half of the sentient universe turns to dust. <sighs> plot twist. Now, there's lots of other plot twists, a lot of other famous, famous movies, Shawshank Redemption, that rock hammer, yeah, okay, Fight Club, those multiple personalities, Sixth Sense, I see dead people, lots of movies with lots of plot twists, and, and the thing is, this is what's so repulsive about spoilers, right, because what spoilers ultimately do is spoilers give away the ending, 
They totally sabotage and ruin the plot twist. And so it's just gone. The story's ruined for us. This is why we, do, we shouldn't share spoilers. Today I'm going to, of course, share a spoiler with you, which should be no surprise. But of course, plot twists, the thing about plot twists is they never really just come out of left field. If they come out of left field and you're like, what? They don't work. The thing about plot twists is there are always little clues within the story, foreshadows, breadcrumbs, signposts that just kind of make the trail towards this final conclusion. And, and they're not actually all clear and they don't always make sense or come together until when that twist happens. Then you go, like, oh, that's what it's all about. And that's how a plot twist works. Today's story in Amos is sort of a plot twist. It's an unexpected ending. See, here's the thing. For nine and a half chapters, Amos has been just calling out Israel. I mean, it has been a divine shakedown. I mean, he spoke out against their false idols and their tempos, against their pride and their sense of false security, against their oppressive ruling class, the social injustice, their, their, their terrible leadership. I mean, he's just speaking out against them. And, and the reason why Amos is doing this is because he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And the Lord is trying to get his people's attention. These are the people that are his beloved covenant people. These are the people that God had rescued from Egypt and brought to the promised land. He'd made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. He gave them the law, right? And they agreed together through this covenant that, that if they kept the covenant and they followed the Lord, he'd bless them. But if they, they kind of ditched the covenant and, and decided to abandon the Lord, well, he'd judge them. Well, by the time Amos had rolled around, Israel in the north had essentially abandoned the Lord for 150 years. But even though they had abandoned him, he was gracious to them. As it turns out, he just, he just kept trying again and again to get their attention. And so Amos was a kind of a continuation of this Lord's call to get them attention. He goes to them and he calls them out, but he also calls them back. Because the Lord is not only just, the Lord is also merciful. And so Amos came to Israel to give them one final gracious warning. But for nine and a half chapters, this warning rolls on and on. Warning and woes, devastation and destruction, justice and judgment. And then in the final five verses of the book, the final five verses of the book, a plot twist. There's this, there's this sudden shift, this dramatic change. It's like, a, it's like a Steven Seagal finishing move. It spins your head and gives you whiplash. And suddenly, there's this great reversal when all the wrongs of Israel are suddenly turned upside down. So I want to look at the text together because it's, it's just brilliant. These final five verses of Amos chapter 9. Here's what it says. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. And repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. And this is the word of the Lord. But what's going on here? Well, suddenly, 
everything gets turned around. And all the wrongs that are in the book of Amos, everything that is bad that is supposed to happen, suddenly gets turned around and is made right again. So this great reversal has come. This great reversal happens, and it happens essentially in five stages. And I just want to quickly unpack those for us this morning so that, so that we can kind of make sense of what's going on here in these last verses. Let me just walk you through them. Number one, the city that was ruined is rebuilt. So you remember in Amos 2.5, it says that the Lord would, would devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. But now there's this great reversal, and suddenly the, this, the city is repaired, and it's raised up, and it's rebuilt. Second, the nations that were assaulted are adopted. So, so the first two chapters of Amos, they, they speak about judgment over the nations surrounding Israel. But now the nations have been, actually been brought into the family, and they're given a new name. Third, the world that was broken is made bountiful. So you remember, Mount Carmel withers. The land of Israel is, is promised drought and blight and pestilence. But now, now it's so bountiful that the workers actually can't even keep up with it. They're like literally tripping over one another. Plant, harvest, replant, harvest, plant, harvest. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Number four, the people who were purged are now prosperous. Because of Assyria, the coming Assyrian armies, <clears throat> the people will be ravaged. Amos says they'll be murdered and exiled. I mean, there's just some, some really dark tones and dark language in Amos about what's going to happen here. Amos 8, if you read it, it speaks about wailing and, and dead bodies. But now, the people of God are living in new cities. And they're drinking wine, and they're eating dessert. Number five, the nation that was self-sufficient is now secure in Yahweh. So you remember, there's, it, it speaks about Israel's pride and their rebellion and, and them saying, you know, I don't need the Lord. You know, he's not going to help us at all. We can do this ourselves. But now we find at the end, it says they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. So they have, they have permanent security. So this, this great reversal happens. There's, there's this giant plot twist. But here's the, thing that, here's the thing that's most important. None of this will be accomplished by Israel. Only the Lord will do this. Only the Lord Yahweh does this. Verse 12 says it really clearly. It says, declares the Lord Yahweh who does this. I mean, we just have to read through the, the, the entire text. The Lord says this. He says, I will raise up. I will restore. I will plant them. So this is not done by Israel. This is only done by the gracious hand of Yahweh. And so here's the question. How will he do this? How is all of this even possible? What's the source of this plot twist at the end of the day? The answer to that question is actually found in the very first verse. And it's found in verse 11. And here's what it says. I will raise up the booth of David. Now, what is that? I mean, what is the booth of David? Well, put it very simply. It means... And it's referring to David's dynasty. Um, see, the Hebrew word there for booth is uh, sukkah. And a sukkah was a tent or it was a hut. It was this, this kind of this temporary makeshift shelter that you put together. And who was David? Well, David, of course, was the second king of Israel after Saul. Saul uh, was an, an evil king. The Lord had rejected Saul. And so he decided he was going to raise up David to be king because David was a man after God's own heart. And so when David took the throne of Israel, the Lord uh, spoke to him through the prophet Nathan, and the Lord made a very significant promise to David. And this is actually well known. It's, it's known as the Davidic covenant, um, and it's found in 2 Samuel 
chapter 7. And I just want to read part of that covenant this morning that the Lord made with David. And this is what the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Here's what it says. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. <clears throat> I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Notice this. David's dynasty in, the, in this text here is referred to as a house. And it, and it says that this house would be established through Solomon, his son. Solomon, of course, would be the king who would, would build the temple. But it would carry on eventually through David's ancestors, through David's lineage. And I want you to take special note of verse 16, because verse 16 says this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David's house, David's lineage, it was to be a permanent dynasty. It was an eternal legacy. This was the promise that God had actually made to David. <clears throat> the problem was that, that this house of his was now in ruins. It wasn't a house. It was a sukkot. It was, it was a ramshackle tent. And see, here's the problem. When the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, uh, David's line only continued ruling over Judah in the south, which was two of the 12 tribes. The northern line, uh, the, the, the northern kingdom was, was ruled over by others who weren't part of the line of David. They weren't part of his dynasty. So during, and during the divided kingdom, what, what you find is that Judah in the south was often subordinate to Israel in the north. Israel in the north was often much more powerful. So in Amos' time, what was very clear was that the house of David had fallen far. It wasn't even a house anymore. It was a sukkah. Yet here, Amos is saying, in this, in this kind of unexpected plot twist... That the Lord promises that one day he will again restore the house of David. That the house of David would again return to its former days of glory. And the reason why is because the Lord's faithful. The Lord keeps his covenants. He's the promise keeper. He's the promise maker. And when he says to David, listen, your, your throne is going to be established forever. He means it. God is going to make this happen. Now, what's really interesting is, is that, that Amos isn't actually the only prophet who would say this. I mean, this prophet, this, this message of, of the, the return of David's line runs all the way through the prophets. I mean, you find it in Isaiah, you find it in Jeremiah, you find it in Ezekiel, you find it in Hosea, uh, you find it in Zechariah. One day, the Lord will restore the house of David. And the question is, well, when will all of this happen? And how will all of this happen? Well, as it turns out, time rolled by. And then nearly 200 years after Amos, a very devastating event happened. Judah was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The city of, of Jerusalem was in ruins, just as Amos predicted in Amos chapter 2 and verse 5. And then God's people ultimately went into exile. And after that, after that moment in history, there was no longer ever a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem. So the house of David had essentially just 
collapsed. So the question is, what about God's promise? Had God's promise failed? Were the prophets wrong? And yet, even through the exile, God continued to speak to his prophets. And, and the Lord kept saying to them, yeah, I will keep my promise. I, I will restore the house of David. But then, after Malachi, who was the final prophet, the final prophet we find in our Old Testament, there was just silence. The prophets went silence. The prophets were no more. And there was 400 years of darkness. And yet, during this time, the Jews continued to wait for the Messiah, the one who would come, the one born of the line of David. Until one day, Yahweh fulfilled his promise. Heaven came crashing into earth through the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. Just as it's foretold in Isaiah chapter 9. You might, you might be familiar with it. For unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So, so the house of David was, was being restored. I mean, this is actually the point. If you read Matthew's gospel, when you read Luke's gospel, you find at the beginning of these genealogies. Uh, and what you discover in both of these genealogies is that Jesus is actually from the line of David, both on his father's side and on his mother's side. So he is the rightful heir of David, both legally and biologically. And actually, the Apostle Paul makes this claim as well. I mean, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, he says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. 2 Timothy 2.8, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So the Gospels and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament, they're reminding who this plot twist turns on. Jesus, the Messiah. So how will Yahweh do this? He would send his one and only son into the world. And his son would come into the world and he'd give his life as a ransom for many. On, the, on a cross, he would surrender his life. And then he would spend three days in the grave. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead, demonstrating his victory over sin and death and the grave. And then after that, he would ascend into heaven. And the promise is that those who put their faith in him, those who surrender their lives in him, they can begin to experience this promised restoration work. And as a matter of fact, they can help continue this, resurrection, this restoration work here on earth. But that doesn't stop there. And this plot twist continues to turn. Because Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, all rights will be made right. All right all, he will right all wrongs. He will fix everything. And this is actually where ultimately the promise of Amos is completed. This is where the, the plot twist kind of finally resolves itself. Jesus returns. He brings justice and peace. He ushers in a new heaven and earth. And, and we read all about this actually in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And, and I, I just want to focus in on those real quick today, this morning. Um, and actually read some chunks of text here. So that you can see those five things that are in Amos are actually found in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And they find their, their completion and their culmination in the finished work of Jesus when he comes again. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Here's verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What do we see? We see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city that was ruined is rebuilt. And then we jump down to verse 22, and it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And a city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The nations that were assaulted are now adopted. Revelation chapter 22, we turn the page, we start at verse 1, here's what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river. What? The tree of life and its twelve kinds of fruit. Yielding fruit when? Yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no night of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The world that was broken through the tree of life, is now made bountiful. The people who were purged are now prosperous. And the nations that were sufficient in themselves are now secure as they will rule and they will reign with Jesus forever. How will Yahweh accomplish this? On whom does this plot twist turn? It turns on Jesus, the heir of David, the Messiah, our great king. Now, The question, where does this all lead us? And where does this all leave us? We're we're believers in Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. You know, the thing about prophetic literature is prophetic literature uses uses metaphor and illustration because it's meant to stir something in us. It's meant to provoke something in us. So I, I just want to suggest two postures of our hearts this morning as we consider what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. And the first posture is this, this is worship. Worship. You know, when we consider the infinite wisdom of God, it, it should leave us breathless. To think about it, that God could actually move human history in this way towards his ultimate purposes. Because of this, we worship him. And when you think about God's mercy to Israel and his mercy towards us, you know, when we, when we, when we, chase after idols, and we rebel against him. It should make us worship him. When we understand that he is a just God, that ultimately he is going to fix all the things that are wrong with our world and with our planet. He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to bring peace. And he says, worship him. When we consider that he's a promise maker and a promise keeper, the God who keeps his covenant, even if it takes a thousand years, we should worship him. See, worship is is the only appropriate response of a heart that truly understands who Jesus is and what he has done. 
This is actually the response that Paul experienced when he, after he finished writing the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. I don't know if you're familiar with Romans, but after he finished the first 11 chapters, I mean, he, in the first 11 chapters, he talks about the fall of man. He talks about the cross. He talks about the spirit. He talks about the new age that would come. He talks about God's plan for Israel. Much of the territory that we actually covered today, okay, Paul covers in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And when Paul finished it all, it's, it's like it blew his mind. It's like he ate 20 packages of nerds and it's just, right? And then at the end of chapter 11, he just writes this, this brilliant doxology of praise. And I just want to read it for you this morning. It's Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that, that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory Forever and ever. Amen. And I can almost imagine Paul just dropping his pen, pushing back his chair, and just falling on his face before God after writing those words. Worship is the only appropriate response to a God who has turned history in this way. But here's the second posture, the second response. I call it anticipation. You know, I think you, we all know that we live in a day of distraction. And, and we live in a day where it's so easy to just fixate on the now. I mean, this, really, this is what our mobile devices just kind of train us to do, right? I mean, everything on our mobile devices is immediate. It's on demand. It's now. And if it's not, then it's old school. And we didn't really that interested in it, right? It doesn't tell us anything about the future. It's now, 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 now. And here's the thing. It's really hard to dream. And it's really hard to be reflective if your nose is stuck inside of a phone. It really is. And so this is the day we live in. We're completely distracted. But followers of Jesus were created, what shall I say, recreated to be future-minded people. We should long for, we should dream about our great and future hope. Now we live in the now, and there's nothing wrong with living in the now. We need to live in the now today, but we also anticipate the future. And so anticipating the future essentially means aligning my life now with what it will ultimately be then. Because my life is not perfect now. My life is sinful now. My life is uh, incomplete now. Um, I am not perfect in any way. I'm not complete. But one day I will be. And the world that I'm in is broken. It's fragile. It's fragmented. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in our world that we just, it just breaks our hearts. But one day it will not be like that. So... Anticipating the future means I align my life now towards what it will be then. And this includes all aspects of my life. It includes my personal life, my private life, my moral life, my physical life, my social life. One day Jesus will come again and he will right all wrongs. He will make a new heaven and new earth. He will bring about justice and peace. And we will dwell and we will rule with him forever. And the question then is, what does that have to do with my life today? And the answer to that question is, Everything. Absolutely everything. So let me get really, really practical. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that Crosspoint is participating in the Beverly cleanup? Matter of fact, why did we spearhead the Beverly cleanup? 
If you don't know, the Beverly cleanup's happening this weekend. Uh, there, have been, there will be, over by the time we're done, over 120 people who have signed up for this Beverly cleanup. That's awesome. Over 80% of those people in the Beverly cleanup are part of Crosspoint. That's awesome. So we're loving our neighbors, and we're doing it in very practical ways. But does that have anything to do, or does what we do now have anything to do with who we will ultimately be then in the future? Why do we raise support for the Mosaic Center? Now, I, I don't know if you're aware, but we, two weeks ago we announced a project. We're supporting the Mosaic Center, and they're moving into the, a, a new space, a new neighborhood. And uh, so far, we have raised $7,500 from you, Crosspoint. Way to go for the Mosaic Center. And with Crosspoint's matching donations of $5,000, that means so far we have raised $12,500 $12, towards the Mosaic Center in just two weeks. That's fantastic. That's amazing. We're serving those in our community who are most vulnerable. But is this in any way connected to our great and future hope? My favorite theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, he, he talks about this in his book, Surprised by Hope. And, and he says, you know, really there are, there are kind of two extremes that Christians can ultimately lean towards. On the one extreme, there's what's known as triumphalism. And on the other extreme, there's what's known as defeatism. And then there are like two ditches on either side of the road. Uh, I'm from Saskatchewan. I'm familiar with ditches. There are a lot of ditches on a lot of roads. My wife's a farmer. To get to her farm, I have to go through a lot of grid and dirt roads. Bottom line is avoid the ditches at all costs, right? You can really wreck your car. I can, I can tell you a story. Uh, there was one time where I was just dating Karen. Like she was like, yeah, I was like 19. She was 18. And we were driving out to the lake and we were on a grid road. And I was in her parents' car. <laughs> I had my arm around her and I'm just driving, right? And uh, I'm going a little fast because I'm showing off. And all of a sudden, fishtail into the ditch, and uh, I mean, like, we're going in the ditch, I, but I kept my arm around her. That's the most important thing, right? right? And then I, I'm like, wow, okay, I should get out of the ditch. I didn't even slow down. Didn't even know. Pulled out of the ditch. Woo, across the side. Went into the other ditch. I'm pressing this babe back onto the road. Kept on going. Didn't stop for beat. Now, I'm sure my father-in-law is watching this. He's like, you did what with my car? <laughs> Listen, at all costs, at all costs, I'm pleading with you. You've got to avoid the ditches. I'm a Saskatchewan boy. Now, what is the ditch of triumphalism? Here's, here's what it is. This is where we imagine that somehow we can build God's kingdom here on earth in our own efforts. So we're essentially, we're saying, Jesus, you know, you don't need to rush back and fix things. You know, we got this covered. We've kind of got all the figured out. We're going to fix the world through social and political or cultural revolution. Uh, this is what's often referred to among Christians as the social gospel, okay? And, and let me just say this. I mean, there has been so much good that has been done through social change, and there needs to be more of it. But the problem with triumphalism is, is, its, is its arrogance at the root of it. Because if, if you have worked closely with entrenched cultures or broken people or systemic problems, then, then you will have to admit that there are no simple solutions to the world's biggest problems. That even after we make a whole bunch of different changes in our culture, we still are a pretty fragmented, frightened, and battered bunch of people. Okay, so that's the challenge of triumphalism. But then there's the other ditch, and this is the ditch of defeatism. 
And those in this ditch say that, you know what, there's not much that we can do until Jesus returns. I mean, the forces of evil are just too much. They're too entrenched. And the problems of the world that we face, they're, they're, too, they're really too hard to tackle. So why should we try? I mean, we should, let's just hold on until Jesus gets back and he'll fix everything, right? I mean, it's all going to burn anyway, right? So we, we should, don't need to worry about it. Jesus is going to come back and fix it. Let's just circle the wagons. Let's just get into our little Christian cul-de-sacs, shield ourselves from the world and its problems and do nothing. Uh, we might throw out a few band-aid solutions, right? So we can feel good about ourselves. But let's really avoid all this changing structures or addressing systemic evil kind of stuff because there's no real point in trying. So that's the other deal. Triumphalism on the one side, defeatism on the other side. But N.T. Wright says, and I mean, if N.T. Wright says it, I mean, it must be true. I mean, but N.T. Wright says, you know, really we need to avoid both ditches. Because what's conscri- what scripture compels us to do is actually to stay in the middle of the road. In what's called an inaugurated eschatology. And I know that's a big word. In other words, what he's saying is that the, the age of the Messiah isn't just in the future. That the age of the Messiah, Jesus, is in the now. And we live and we love in the now. Anticipating what will ultimately come then in the future. So yeah, the world will one day be completely restored by Jesus. But the world has already been turned upside down by Jesus. This is what Easter is all about. This is what the resurrection is all about. It's about Jesus the Christ coming into the world and turning the world upside down by coming back again from the dead. And so the thing is, our great and future hope ultimately pulls us towards itself. So as we anticipate the future, we think about the future, then we seek to know Jesus now as we will know Jesus then. We seek to live in glad obedience now as we will live in obedience with Jesus then. We, we seek to build God's kingdom now here on earth as it will be then. So I just want to read from N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, and, and, and read what he says about this. It's, it's just so compelling. He says this. <clears throat> he says, listen, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love. Gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation. Every minute minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings. And for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. Uh, And of course, prayer, all spirit-led teaching. Every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption. And makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Friends, the plot twist of human history turns on Jesus Christ. And and somehow in his infinite mercy and justice, he is going to fix everything. And so what does this do? This compels us to bow and worship. And it calls us to live in anticipation. And so Crosspoint, Crosspoint, may we be that kind of people. And may the, the words of Amos ring true for us.
as they do for thousands of Christians, millions of Christians throughout history and across the world. May we be that kind of people. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you have done this and you will do this. We worship you today. For those who do not know you, who are listening in, tuning in today, I, I, I pray that they would surrender their lives to you, bow their knee before you, and say, Jesus, lead me, have me, command me. And we do that as well, Lord, as your people. We worship you and surrender ourselves to you. And Jesus, would you teach us to long for your coming so that we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Teach us to live in the now as we live in the future as well. We bless you and we praise you. Help us, Lord, to participate with you in your restoration work here on earth. Give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.